0: Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. (laughs) Oh. Oh, Alright. Well... Oh okay. John, a beautiful day for podcasting. How Ooh. are you doing on this sunny sunny podcaster morning?
1: Uh I am you know what? I'm 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 doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. I've been I've been watching a lot of old uh Peter Fonda movies. I've been mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. getting really into the cinema of Dennis Hopper uh and you know that that mid 20th century American uh, roadster motorcycle and I think we should talk about it
0: i I love it, I love it, and you know, I just watched Jesus Christ superstar for the first time, so I feel like I'm in the exact same mindset as you. Hey, do I you, think we're ready to go uh yeah i I think we are too, but
1: I think <laughs> before we set off on this um a road trip of sorts, if you will, uh I think we should probably we should probably talk very quickly
0: about how fucking cool unions are, extremely cool, extremely cool, so uh, so our, our podcast, we, we are not a topical news show. Uh, so often we're commenting on news events. I don't know, maybe a month or three after they've happened. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, being super timely
1: is something we've always struggled with, let's be honest.
0: <laughs> it's, 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 this there's, there's a reason why we talk about horror movies from the 70s half the time. But SAG-AFTRA and the WGA are kicking ass on their strike.
1: Uh, as part of the um, SAG-AFTRA uh, strike quite a lot of the the unions have asked that people do not spend any time promoting work that's coming out of struck studios uh, we are completely unaffiliated to the unions obviously but we are completely and 100% behind them in their fight to get the the uh, the payment that allows them to keep making the incredible work that we love so much mm-hmm. um, but what that means on a practical level is that the HV schedule has undergone some pretty radical transformations in the last, like, two days. Um, we had some really, really big, exciting plans, um, which we are going to put on hold and are not going to do until the studios decide to start paying actors and writers what they deserve. Um, that includes the Twin Peaks retrospective. That That's going to be on hold until the strike is Resolved. I think that's probably fair to say. Um, <clears throat> we have some really big plans for Halloween, for the month, the spookiest month of the year, which, as long-time listeners will know, is when we are probably at our busiest. That's when we put out some of our biggest and most extensive episodes. Pretty much all of those are going to be on hold until we know more about the strike. Uh, in the show notes to this episode, we're going to put links to some information from the WGA and from SAG-AFTRA. Um, so that you can find out more about what the strike is about why the uh writers and actors are on strike and the ways that um you know we can we can support what they're trying to do um one final thing that i i do want to i do want to say if there are uh sag or wga members who are involved in horror cinema in any form and would like to come on the show uh to talk about the strike to talk about their own experiences this is what we're here for
0: yeah, or or just talk about movies outside of the scope of those struck studios, which, uh, dear listeners, is what it, exactly what we're going to be doing. So I really hope you like movies uh, with with titles like Werewolves on Wheels. <laughs> I I sort of feel that uh, in the Venn diagram of Ash Cinema
1: and John Cinema. Um, it's it's for all for all the ash heads out there this is gonna be your time oh this is a
0: huge boon this is a huge boon for us i gotta say
1: <laughs> i am basically i am basically allowed to talk about a couple of a24 movies and that's <laughs> sort of it <laughs> although one yeah. final one one final point it is incredibly notable that a24 um w- was as far as i'm aware they were in complete agreement with the recommendations from the unions and actually got a strike waiver for yeah. a couple of productions that were happening under there um, uh, in their production house. And, and one of like, them
0: is a horror movie.
1: If if mid-budget horror movie studio, <laughs> a, 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 a mid-budget uh, horror movie production company can go, yeah, fair enough, the SAG-AFTRA and WGA <laughs> are making some good points. The big and, boys and, can play ball as well.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, and that's the most damning thing in the world for Universal, Paramount, Warner, Disney, like everybody else. If if A24 can meet the demands in their entirety, then there's literally no excuse for these larger companies. They're, they're revealing themselves entirely here. Also, I encourage everyone to... I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Do a quick online search for Ron Perlman's recent commentary, the actor who played Hellboy amongst a thousand other things, because uh, he hit the nail on the head. I'm, I'm gonna yeah, say. I'll uh, leave it as a little surprise when you find it, though.
1: Yeah. All, all we're gonna say is Mr. Ron Perlman is extremely cool. <laughs> makes <laughs> makes some very very compelling arguments. Um, but yes, for the next for the next for for the foreseeable, we are going to be trying to avoid. Uh, the work of Struck Studios. We are going to be trying to do uh, what we can to put um, to to give some support to the WGA and to SAG-AFTRA, and that means Ash is
0: in heaven because we are talking <laughs> about it's 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 Ash Cinema, baby. <laughs> I'm I'm really gla- I'm so glad right now that Mill Creek Entertainment folded and was likely outside of the AMPTP stuff anyway because we are going to be watching a lot a lot of mill creek entertainment movies. <laughs> I'm I'm so excited. Let's 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 fucking
1: go. Here we uh go. but today uh as we be- we begin as we begin our odyssey, uh we are talking about um we're talking about a, a rare Venn diagram of a movie. Do you do you ever wish that your n- mid uh, your late 60s, early 70s biker exploitation films had more lycanthropy in them. <laughs> I know I do. So, Every so Ash, Ash, could you explain what Werewolves on Wheels
0: is all about? 1969 was one of the most impactful years in American cultural history. The Summer of Love was gutted by the Manson family murders right as the post-war economic boom was showing its first signs of deflating. The road trip of the American psyche was running out of gas, and each flower child bore witness to the sowing of the seeds of a boiling earth. Materialist wisdom fails the moment, so let us turn to a mystic hermeneutic, a live drawing of the tarot. The past influences, present condition, and a future moment in time that feels like the end of it all comes to us cascading down from the seeming revolutionary event of the summer of love. Today, I'll be drawing from the Philosopher's Tarot, brought to us by our friends over at Acid Horizon. So for past events, we've drawn the Queen of Pentacles, represented here by Hannah Arendt. The present condition? We get the Ten of Swords, represented by the schism between Stalin and Trotsky. <laughs> oh dear. And for the future, we have... Oh. Oh. Okay. All right. Temperance represented by Arthur Schopenhauer. Cool. <laughs> Sick combo. So what what can we make of this reading then? Hannah Arendt's Queen of Pentacles suggests that our past is, in part, defined by an envy of great figures. I do feel that. The envy of the seeming hope of an open world that filled the cultural imagination of the summer of love. But how can we go beyond that simple envy and grow to the mystic proportions of the cultural giants we look back upon just as they grew from their inspirations the ten of swords is an ominous draw for the present moment but i find a strange hope in the philosopher's tarot connecting that one to one of the greatest schisms in left political history for we too are at a historic schism we require a radical shift in more than just the political structures that govern our world but a shift in how we approach and understand events that are inherently political. And finally, Schopenhauer's temperance. We're also strained by late capitalism. Higher, rents are higher than ever. Food is unaffordable, as is medical care. Recreation is hardly a possibility. And AI programs are making art so that we can work even longer hours. It's hard to see temperance as a virtue here. Yet, maybe we require a negative temperance a metered withdrawal from the things that dwindle the soul and render us incapable of good. In short, maybe it's time to sever those depressive anhedonic ties and rejoin the world. A legacy of events leads us to the opening of a rift. We can either have agency in how the rift is formed and ultimately sealed, or we can drift along to someone else's ride. Choose wisely and join us as we discuss Werewolves on Wheels
1: yeah that's an interesting way of putting it ah yes 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 uh here and, we go um, i I feel like more films you should do the pricey just based off the <laughs> philosopher's tarot
0: <laughs> I really 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 should uh where where would you like to begin the formalism is so- Ooh, so every time I put my tarot deck away, I always check out the bottom card just uh just to kind of get one one parting glimpse. And and it's 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 our boy GFW Hegel as the devil. <laughs> uh always was, always shall be. But uh, you know, I, I think we should start right where uh Hegel would have started, and that's considering the IMDB rating of this film. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so you you were in charge of imdb and i had rotten tomatoes for, for for this one what what does imdb what do the great sages of imdb foretell about today's film um well i think this is a this is a good way of actually getting into
1: a discussion of the problems of our contemporary um the, the way that in kind of like contemporary uh popular culture we organize and catalog information and the way in which we kind of have discussions about like cinematic history so we have always said jokingly that if you if you see something on imdb that has like between a three and a five you know you're getting a good movie
0: uh this is this is right in that sweet spot at 4.6 ooh, ooh, that is that is buttery that is right where you want your largely forgotten horror cinema to be sitting and what about over on rt So Rotten Rotten Tomatoes, one of the most infamous film review sites out there. Um, This one has a score which I'll refer to as Prophetic Bordering on Sacred. And that is none. There is no critical score for this one on Rotten Tomatoes. It is not even a zero. It is no entries. And the audience score is a beautiful 25. 25%. that's, that's, That's what we want. And that's that's um, ooh that is the recipe for a movie right there. I didn't check Letterbox. I, I didn't see what people were saying about this film over there.
1: I am sort of hoping. I am sort of hoping that over the years we've managed to like. I know. I know we've increased the viewership of quite a few uh, minor films. I am sort of hoping that we've managed to sort of destabilize some of the IMDb ratings of like, oh, it's the Wisconsin Cheese Murderer because. Uh, <laughs>
0: A movie sure we're covering next week
1: yeah that's that's nice i but mostly because I feel like these 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 kind of algorithmic and these these uh these consolidated reviews basically uh are a way of kind of shortcutting the problem of trying to interpret a movie on its own terms because you just go ah well it's a six ah well it's a f-. so we don't need to worry because we have the the wisdom of the mass audience. Rather than actually engaging it critically, you know, as 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 a as a subject, as an individual.
0: And and I mean like there's, there's so much worth picking apart in IMDB and Rotten Tomatoes and Letterboxd scores and like the star system as a rating in general. And I mean I mean like we, we've talked about this a lot on the show over the the several hundred episode history of horror vanguard, but one of the things I'd want to bring up is it's it, it kind of divorces you from the historical context of a film. We we forget mm-hmm. often that a lot of movies bombed when they came out and then became critically successful 10 20 years down the road. There are also movies that were box office hits, extremely critically successful that are just entirely forgotten today, or if not entirely forgotten, like no one's talking about them. They've just fallen to the wayside completely.
1: Well, I I I feel like this is this is less a singular film and it is more like a kind of this is the, this is, I don't, I don't want to get too kind of like saccharine, but this is really one of the lovely things about particularly, um, indie low budget, no budget cinema is that it forms, it functions as this kind of like time capsule, not just of itself, but of a specific moment in culture. When you realize that you're kind of, you're getting to watch all of the things that a specific social and historical moment was like, this is the thrill, right? This is the kind of like this is the this is the jouissance of like that window of time between 1968 and 1973. Mm-hmm. This is this distilled down into
0: barely a feature film is is werewolves on wheels, and that the, 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 I mean, like one, like it's it's beautiful to see or to know that there was a moment in time where werewolves can freely ride their motorcycles throughout American streets. It's it's a shame we've lost touch with that. But I, on a more serious note, I, I I completely agree. Like this movie is like, you know, we we were joking about this before we started recording, but this is this is Easy Rider with werewolves. And and there's something like incredibly beautiful about that. There's some like amazing shots in this movie. There's some clever cinematography. There's some like interesting stuff happening here. Like you, you see, you can see the dawn of new Hollywood happening with werewolves on wheels, just as easily as you can with stuff like Easy Rider.
1: Yeah, and the, and this is the point, which is like, uh, th- there's a kind of immediacy. Uh, the, the new Hollywood explodes into into this kind of sheen of professionalism, whereas werewolves on wheels, you have this. You get to see the historicity of cinema is this kind of living thing. And you're right, there's lots that's interesting here. There's also lots which is not
0: good. Learn how uh, to film at night before you make your feature-length movie is a piece of advice I would give to everyone.
1: (laughs) I I don't want to be someone to tell you how to make your early 1970s werewolf biker exploitation film,
0: (laughs) but... Oh dear, and then, I, I think that's that's also a really important like discursive point here. Like, I I haven't looked up the IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes score for Easy Rider, but I'm assuming that they're glowing because it's Easy Rider. And right, and even if they're not, Easy Rider's place in the canon of great cinema is secured. You know, like there there are books on the on the film. There is great academic discussion on it. It's just a popular, well discursed movie, and through that like it has been reabsorbed into the same kind of structures that new hollywood would have wanted to resist right like, yes exactly and Werewolf, I think one werewolves the, on wheels skipped that entirely
1: <laughs> and i think one of the things that helps it do that is that there's quite a lot in this film which is sort of like non-professional acting or in fact not really acting at all yes
0: Oh absolutely. So in in this movie, a lot of the bikers and footage of bikers that you see, um it was just bikers biking and doing stuff. They they weren't acted, it wasn't scripted. It was just actual bikers doing biker things which borders on reality or documentary work. Yeah,
1: and I think I think this is the kind of interesting thing about this film and this moment in film history when You know you know, it's a very easy way to go. It's very easy to be like, oh, it's Easy Rider but with werewolves, but like to actually investigate the the rise of like the Hells Angels and biker gangs and like what the biker stood for at that particular moment in America in the American cultural imagination and why it's you know, obviously there's a practical reason why you don't use professional actors, right? It's cheaper. Mm -hmm. But also you get something from these these people that you would not get from a more kind of polished cinematic product,
0: right? Mm-hmm. There, there, there's something really interesting that's happening here, and that's there. there is no simulacra of the biker in this film. This is a biker from the early 70s. This is what they were doing. This is who they were. You know, these aren't these aren't actors attempting to understand and reproduce the nature of the biker. This is just the the thing in and of itself that we're encountering here. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Um, and I think this brings up the connection that
0: you wanted to make with Sharknado. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so I've had Werewolves on Wheels on my like two watch shelf for probably over a year now. And I, I I picked this up at a thrift store because I was like, oh, Werewolves on Wheels, Shark Side of the Moon, Shark of the Corn, House Shark. Like, it, it fits with that formula, you know, where Shark, right? Like, I figured it was just one of those movies. Um, didn't look at when it was released, didn't look at the back of the, the DVD, just picked it up and bought it. Um, and then, like, put it on and I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, this was shot on film. <laughs> this is not... <laughs> <laughs> this is this is not an Asylum Pictures movie, um, and I think that there's something Im- Im- discursively important in that, right? Like how we kind of the Sharknado phenomena, if you will, is in. It, it, this is this is one of those things where it's like it's too early to pick apart what the Sharknado has done to the landscape of horror cinema, but like some some of the early things that we can see forming are like. Uh, there's this fixation on rapidly cloning shark plus whatever as kind of a formula. And we could see the same thing happening with other franchises now, like Amityville, you get Amityville plus whatever, you know, there's Amityville in space. There's, there's Amityville Karen. And that contrasts nicely with, I, I think with werewolves on wheels, right? Like we're, we're also, this is happening to, we've got movies like Werecop cop now mm-hmm. and like, Werewolves on Wheels is, is, is a reminder that the kind of, like, low-budget junk horror movies that that are, like, uh, attempts to clone a recent successful film can also in and of themselves be incredibly provocative and successful. You know, like, they, they don't always have to be rushed and and quite as, like, I don't know. The those Sharknado movies never quite did it for me, as interesting as the discourses might be.
1: I... I'm quite glad that we've stayed away from Sharknado for so long because it becomes this thing which is, like, it buys into its own, like, memetic self-referentiality where it sort of, like, uh, goes, oh, look, we've, we've designed Sharknado 3 to make sure that we go viral on social media. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Werewolves on Wheels never did that and it's better for it. <laughs>
0: And, and 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 I think that's that, that's an interesting interesting thing to to pick apart in the space of knockoff movies designed to cash in on the success of an already established successful film. Mm-hmm. That that even intra that space, even intra the space of the most junk cinema, the most you you would get this as an impulse buy in the checkout line at Walmart, like even in that zone. Like, Werewolves on Wheels is a really good movie. Being a clone of Easy Rider aside, it's pretty great. It can stand on its own. If you've never seen Easy Rider, you don't need to have seen Easy Rider to appreciate Werewolves on Wheels.
1: There is actually something we should probably talk about. Um, because thinking back, it we've we've talked about a whole variety of sort of the horror figures in cinema. But we've never really given much time to lycanthropy. We've never given much time to werewolves. Um I can think we've we've done one or two episodes, I think. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, maybe we should unpack that before we get into this film itself. Why yeah. why is it do you do you think that we've not talked about werewolves as much as we have like zombies or vampires or serial killers? <laughs>
0: Um, I, I I love how you said that with the tone of, we're going to be recording a very special episode of Horror Vanguard today. (laughs) But so what what I find really interesting about the kind of unpacking, because I was thinking about that as, as I was watching, I was like, we don't really do a lot of werewolf movies over here. And I, I think there's a few things going like one werewolves are less popular. And I think there's a bunch of reasons for that. Um, but one of the reasons that I was considering is that like you and I are both like trained academics in Gothic studies and Gothic studies has a powerful bias towards hauntings and vampires as an academic field. And that is, this is, this is the most like inside academia baseball thing ever. Yeah. Our field is heavily biased towards ghosts and vampires. And I really think we need to open up the werewolf space a little bit more, but it's also true, you know, and like, like broader discussions, like. Even if we look outside of Gothic studies and we look at like Karl Marx's writing and his use of the Gothic or Mark Fisher, you know, or even um Oh my god, who wrote Tendrils Longer Than Night? I am Eugene Thacker. Even like mm, yeah. even even like Thacker, like uh like we start looking at all these people and like they're drawn to the Lovecraftian, they're drawn to the vampiric, they're drawn to hauntings. But the figure of the lycanthrope is kind of left on the sidelines here. And I think I think it's time I think it's time. I think it's time we get a little werewolfy.
1: Uh, yeah, so you know, if you have recommendations of of, of cool werewolf films, uh, we always want to we always want to hear them. We always want to uh, find out more that we can add to our list, of potential things. Um, and you know, if you want to help subsidize our, our days and nights of uh, road tripping across the cinematic <laughs> landscape on our uh, mid '60s Harley's, uh, you can do that at patreoncom at, uh, slash horrorvanguard and HorrorVanguard.com. Um, you know. We really do love what we do. we do want to put more time into it and your support really does help make that happen if there are episodes that you have enjoyed um please do think about signing up you get early access you get bonus episodes you get access to the discord and you get a whole host of other cool stuff
0: umvango.com yeah help us help us keep making the show if you if you donate on our patreon fifty to a hundred thousand dollars, John and I will fire up our Harleys and drive to your location with a bunch of bonus episodes in a plastic tube in the gas tank and secretly drop them off uh, at, at a festival near you. So there's, there's the uh, Horror Vanguard promise. We, we will? I mean, yes, we will. <laughs> honestly, honestly, if someone gave us 100k, I think all of the, not only all the costs would be covered, but we would be all right with that one. <laughs> Um okay. I don't know how Let's, to ride a motorcycle for the record, so I guess I'd have to learn, but I mean uh, for that kind of support, I, I'm pretty sure we would manage I, I'd pick up a skill, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh so the before we enter the discourse zone here, um I, I think it's worth worth touching base with new Hollywood for a second. Because this is e- easy rider, so the studio system was suffering majorly towards the end of the 60s. uh uh, movies just weren't what they used to be in terms of making money and then along comes Mm -hmm. easy rider uh the the uh summer of love motorcycle end of the 60s film of a generation that rekindles hollywood that gives the studios the financial faith in the kind of new hollywood artists that they need to start making all of the movies that we associate with new hollywood it kind of all comes out of Easy Rider and also Werewolves on Wheels comes out of Easy Rider. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's um like Jack Nicholson's incredible. It 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 is the first time that like properly independent cinema realizes it doesn't necessarily have to be completely separate from the Hollywood mainstream. It's it's kind of really the end of the um this idea of like the i mean obviously there's there's a kind of long breakup of the hollywood studio system but the, this is kind of done now um mm-hmm. and easy rider represents a, a sort of generational epistemic shift in how you make films mm-hmm. and what what the film can talk about what the film can cover i mean the other the other kind of big turning point here i think is something like bonnie and clyde yep um which i think is what nineteen seventy two i'm gonna have to check that
0: because if it's wrong that's all i'm gonna hear about <laughs> thank god I'm not on twitter anymore i can no longer i no longer hear that great roaring din of you got the year wrong about this movie ding oh uh
1: not even nineteen sixty seven so even better just before easy easy rider but maybe maybe what we can do to start off is kind of like Put the biker into some sort of cultural context.
0: Yeah, and I think I think a, a good place to kick that off, while while staying on the foot of New Hollywood, is to kind of take a look at the fact that you know Easy Rider is treated as, which is rightfully it should be, is like this great work of art that really changes a lot of cinematic tones. But it's not ex nihilo. It did not come out of the void, right? It, it was, in a lot of respects, an attempt to take the exploitation out of an exploitation biker movie, which was already an established mm-hmm. genre. You know, Brando's uh, The Wild One, which I think was mid-50s, if I'm remembering right. It was in the 50s. I think it was mid-50s. Um, but that, that, that movie really, really kick biker fever in cinema, and especially biker exploitation movies. Uh, that that movie in and of itself, uh, The Wild One was a like loose inspiration from the Hollister Riot, which was a uh, 1940s bicycle club gathering in like a small American town. And by riot, uh, 50 people got arrested for like being drunk and too loud, and only a handful of people got hurt, but they got hurt in ways where like, I don't know, people are gonna fracture collarbones in a big motorcycle event because you're riding around on motorcycles. You know, like yeah. there there was no quote unquote riot. And in fact, a lot of people from the town were like, yeah, they were drunk and loud, but they really didn't do anything. But the news picked up on this. The news picked up on like, oh, bikers, bikers descend on small town America and cause riot citizens in chaos, police overwhelmed. And then Hollywood catches on to that. Right. And then this this kind of cultural mythic figure emerges, you know, the the biker exploitation is born.
1: And all of this, of course, uh, does coincide with the so-called Summer of Love, um, you know, and I think we should probably, we should probably talk a little bit about that, that window of time, you know, 1968 to 1972, mm-hmm. and the, in a, like, so in a way, if if the film noir comes out of the crisis of American self-identity at the end of the, the Second World War, in a way, the biker. As a cinematic figure, does the same thing, but for this period of time. Yeah. Um, what what do you think about the connection with like this with like the summer of love?
0: I mean, like, I think there's a lot there's there's a lot to kind of unpack here, right? Because all, all of this stuff is kind of happening at this is the beginning of the end of the post war boom in America, right? Like this this is this is when the the kind of like great chord of the post war American economy is starting to fray. Right, ultimately mm-hmm. leading to the point we're at now. Like, if there is a big historic arc to trace, it's then to here, and then you've got stuff like like Hunter S. Thompson's big debut was his book on the Hell's Angels, right, which drew infamously, yeah, yeah. Which, which drew massive attention to that specific biker gang, and and created a whole cultural mythology of the outlaw biker kind of grew out of that moment, right. And then I, I think the, the the Summer of Love is a great hinging point for this, right, because like. hippies were a relatively short-lived cultural phenomenon here in the States. You know, like, if we, especially like, you know, if we think about punk and punk is like a subcultural identity, a subcultural body of artworks, like there, there is a continuous thread for punk rock from the seventies straight through to today of bands iterating on each other's styles, fashion evolving and changing. But the, the, the hippie movement was kind of a flash in the pan comparatively but the things from the summer of love that have lasted were Mm -hmm. the darker things it was the manson family murders right it was the the hell's angels and their cultural legacy it was the the kind of darker impetus like easy easy rider is a tragic and violent movie it is it is the boot stamping out the flame of the summer of love
1: i i actually think we should probably talk a little bit about the sort of generational politics of the hippies versus like the bikers and punks yeah yeah Um, this is interesting yeah so i i think a really good example and maybe the way into this that i want to talk about is like mark fisher was was in some of his earlier work quite scathing about hippies this idea of like a kind of hedonistic the hedonistic dropout and all they wanted to do was like uh smoke weed and listen to uh Hendrix and the Sun and there was like there was no actual kind of demand whereas the punks and the bikers had a demand. It was a kind of rejection mm-hmm. of of what uh that American bubble of prosperity had brought to bear. But if you look at how the politics of those have played out um th- generally the 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 politics of the hippies stayed pretty consistent. Whereas how many of like the countercultural figures of like punk and the the outlaws and the rebels of the 70s and 80s have kind of slowly drifted into right-wing conspiracyism and like slowly become more reactionary and more conservative. Um mm-hmm. and so it's very telling that Fisher was quite scathing about hippies in in I think it's in capitalist realism. And then in the K-punk collection, there's the unfinished yes. introduction yep. to acid communism. Where he's talking about psychedelia, he's talking about consciousness raising. He's talking about how actually maybe maybe the hippies were right, uh, maybe they had a few good points. Uh, and I guess maybe the question is: is the figure of the biker an inherently reactionary figure?
0: I, I think there's a lot to unpack about the biker because because you know kind of like motorcycle clubs and and the the cultural figure of the biker emerges in America in the early 1900s. The, the motorcycle mm-hmm. club phenomenon is a post World War II American thing. It was a lot of soldiers coming back to the states all fucked up from war, just riding around on motorcycles together, and like, you know, like I think it's like the American Motorcycle Club Association or something like that. I'm forgetting their specific name, um, but they were a whites-only organization into the 50s, and so so this mm-hmm. is rooted in a reactionary body of. Of politics and right, still to this day, a lot of like quote unquote outlaw biker gangs don't allow women to be ranking members and they're still extremely racist, and this is definitely a problem. And then if we turn that same critical lens towards punk, like one of the most damning critiques of, of punk as a long-lasting cultural movement is if if the hippies were all like tune in and drop out with psychedelics, then what were the punks with speed heroin and booze? Like I really think
1: I really think the good example of how this has played out is to look at like people like Morrissey and Johnny Rotten and like and oh yeah oh, okay that's mm-hmm. that's how they've ended up that's that's how they've ended up or even even like um, contemporary
0: stuff like Anti-Flag just broke up a, a, a few weeks ago I think because their lead singer was is is a horrible rapist bastard so like it's we don't even have to go back to Johnny Rotten's fall. I mean, there was no fall from Grace for Johnny Rotten, but like So I I guess I guess the thing is is like the appeal
1: of 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 the Biker movie is like as the outlaw, as as the as the kind of freedom of the road. But it is a freedom that's inherent I I do think kind of in almost inherently tied up within a unexamined degree of reactionary politics
0: in, in right? yes.
1: so, i mean uh, the hell's angels like did dr- drug running basically to f- to 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 finance their cosplay like that's <laughs> like
0: like and, and something that I, th- I think that really resonates with me with what you just said is that there is kind of like a strong overlap between the kind of formula of the biker movie and the formula of the zombie apocalypse survivor you know the yes. the, the renegade yeah, yeah, alone yeah. on the road guns out against the world you know the, the the kind of rebel the the very james dean rebel without a cause attitude although there are interesting ways to pick apart the rebel without a cause thing that we will save for i don't know a future episode on james dean did james dean do horror movies i don't know <laughs> but like i i think that 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 is a really compelling way to begin this analysis right like the, the distinction between, and especially when you like look at this movie, there is like an uncomfortable blurring between things that we would culturally code as being hippie, especially now in the 2020s and things that we would code as being like some kind of retro biker thing, right? Like these yeah. th- these guys are like smoking a lot of weed, they're doing acid. they're they're rolling around in fields. The satanic cult led by the one it has, has very strong hippie vibes in part. And it's that it's that complicated blurring that I think we have to deal with, right? Because all cultural movements have failed up until this point, or not entirely succeeded, I should say. Failure is perhaps too grim, but like a, a lot yeah. of the boomers and Silent Generation that were preaching free love are now Mitch McConnell.
1: Yeah, there's this. There's a, there is this tension between the kind of libertarian, basically. Okay, I don't know if this is historical move works. But basically, the biker is to the mid twentieth century as the pirate is to like Ooh. the the sixteenth and seventeenth century, right? Because what is it? It's about it's about freedom. It's about taking what you want with violence if you have to, and not obeying the law, mm-hmm. right? It's about parity, and in a way, that's kind of the Amer- that's a, that's a part of the American dream. Um, but at the same time, and you're right in this film, there is this tension between you know, uh, a kind of, like, homosocial communality and, like, being out in the desert and having kind of experiences and doing acid with your friends and at the same time, like, getting drunk and going looking for a fight (laughs) with a group of weird monks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, and I think that conflict is... It is perfect, right? This site of struggle, right? Like this kind of unanswered problem. like the, the movie doesn't, do I think the overly simplistic term, uh, turn of like damning one side in favor of the other. You know, like they're they they're mutually constitutive, right? Like especially like, you know, like if we shift focus again to the punk identity, for for how long, how much of the punk identity was simply a reactionary counterposition against the hippie identity? It was it was just mm. a mirrored position, you know. We were we are what they are not, you know. And if that if that kind of logic sounds familiar, I will now turn our attention to the Democrats and or the Labor Party and how they have positioned themselves in politics to their respective conservative parties. Yeah. Please this, see this the, chart. The
1: def- definition of via negation. Yes, doesn't really get you very
0: far. In which and and again, like to to go back to the um. Uh, unfinished introduction to acid communism like the, there is an attempt to navigate the way out of that there is an attempt to be like okay like the, the hippies are corny as hell but they were in in some respects attempting something that uh, other groups have hitherto failed yeah exactly and i actually think this
1: this brings up something which the, the mediating point as it were between the libertarian reactionary politics of the biker versus the commutarian hallucinogenic politics of the hippie. The the mediating point in this film explicitly is is twofold, right? It's between the monks and the satanic ritual. Uh, and it's with Tarot. And maybe
0: we can talk about we can start I, I know you know more about Tarot than I do, so maybe we can start there. So so there's a character in this movie named Tarot. But they, how do they pronounce it again? It was like, what, what? Oh my god! Now I'm trying to remember. It was like Taru or something. Like, yeah, Taru. Yeah, they, they were saying, and I and I didn't put it together until I saw it spelled out in the credits. Um, and you're like, oh, I was like, oh, that's I why he's it. always got the tarot deck, and he's always talking about the tarot, despite his name being Taru or something. But what I find to be really interesting is so Adam is the leader of our biker gang, and he is only really interested in the material. Right, he's interested in their destinations, where they're going next, getting gasoline. Right, very focused on immediate material needs for the bikers, and then you've got Taro, whose interests are much deeper, much more abstract, and much more hard to articulate. And we have here this kind of like really, really interesting, and I think really exciting and productive struggle between this kind of baser materialism that can't see beyond its own nose. And like the ultimate abstraction of like a a theory bro who is incapable of kind of kind of grappling with the world. Or actually, now yeah, th- you know, now that I'm saying that, I, I I almost like, because Tarot is right through the whole movie. Tarot is encouraging these people not to fuck with this evil satanic werewolf cult. and And we've got, um, oh my God, sorry, I'm like iterating in real time on my own notes here. Uh, Adam Adam is like no like because the, the, the one satanic werewolf cult is like giving them free bread and wine and Adam is like yay yeah. free food base material needs met and then you've got Tarot who's like hang on a minute something's amiss about this evil satanic werewolf yeah.
1: cult something about this doesn't seem
0: right to me but I'm not sure what yeah and I don't know what, what, do, you, what, do, what do you make of this kind of like interesting juxtaposition between Tarot and Adam
1: I think that there's a really interesting moment where he's asked to read the cards of someone.
0: Oh yeah, it's Adam's girlfriend.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, Adam's girlfriend because she wants to know how she's going to die. Um and Adam's like, "Oh, why are you telling her this stuff? It's turning into something really depressing." And he's like, "I d- I'm just telling the truth." Um I and yeah, I I'm sort of fascinated by this, by this idea of like what you think to be true and what is materially true are often, at least, not necessarily on the surface, but are often kind of contradictory. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know, I, you know, you did your tarot reading to start things off. Do you find value in tarot as a kind of discipline and practice?
0: I mean, like, I, I, I see it in the same way I see psychoanalysis, right? Like, these are, this is a set of hermeneutic tools, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, you, you can use them for their descriptive power, their descriptive potency, right? Like, it is helpful to have, like, a set of outside psychic tools to assist you in interpreting the events of the world around you. You know, yeah. and if, if it's more than that, it's more than that, but it kind of functionally can't be less than that, you know? And I mean, like that that same reasoning could apply to many things beyond tarot. And of course, it's necessary to be critical of the systems that you employ. And, and I think we get this we, in, in that same uh, right before that scene where tarot reads the tarot cards for Adam's girlfriend. Uh, uh, Adam Adam comments, we all know how we're going to die, baby. We're going to crash and burn. Which I think is also sampled in Rob Zombie's song "Sick Bubblegum." Uh, uh, correct ah, me cool. in the comments if I'm wrong. Ha, huh, there aren't comments. Um, this is a podcast. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Because we're not fools. But I, I think that I think that's really interesting because again, like that's like a, a a very like flippant like base materialist way of approaching that, right? Like, and he's also like a- Adam has already resigned himself to the series of events, right? And
1: well again this is this is the kind of distinction of the biker right what is it the biker
0: wants the biker wants to like die live fast die young well mm-hmm. like i think i think that i kind of connected it to was like one of the things that was actually kind of hard for me while watching this movie was that like they're like biking through the american southwest right like it's it's like 115 degrees in phoenix arizona right now you know like that is that is hot enough to melt your car if you park in the sun. Mm-hmm. You know, you can bake mm-hmm. brownies in an open sheet on the ground, right? Like it is badly hot. <laughs> um, and the kind of the, the ability to like, oh, drop out, do acid in the desert, kind of escape to these like these these arid wastelands that could have you know at least in part sustained this kind of rogue dropout lifestyle. That that is not very possible in 115 degree heat like that just can't be done. And so you see that happening in this movie and then Adam's attitude, Adam's kind of resignation to the slow oncoming crash of his death reminded me a lot of like climate doomerist discourses, you know, like things are already fucked like even that phrasing things are fucked. Right, the implication yeah, that things are yeah, beyond things- saving, that there's nothing that can be done, that we've already res- resigned ourselves to this slow oncoming crash with climate.
1: Why? Because we wanted to satisfy just our kind of immediate material want. Mm-hmm. We wanted to be able to pump as much gas as we wanted. We wanted all of the free food and we didn't want to think beyond that.
0: Yeah, and even, so, so Taro, like, his big struggle in this movie is that he is aware of alternative paths and different dangers ahead but he has the kind of really scary responsibility of trying to articulate that in his peer group you know be, being yes. able to vo- vocalize it causes that. a fight yes. Yes. it causes yes. a fight even in adam who we gather is like they're they're like long-term friends and like the two de facto leaders of this club like like it causes a rift between them and i think we have the same thing with like climate doomer discourse right like You've Mm. got that that kind of impetus to resign because then you abnegate the struggle. You abnegate any conflict. If the climate's already fucked because oil billionaires have destroyed it and there's nothing to be done, well, then your actions are all absolved because everything is over. The game is finished and no one's playing anymore. But if there are things to be done, then you have the horrifying responsibility to figure out what those things are and then do them.
1: I guess guess that that makes me think of... Well, I we kind of have to talk about our satanic cult here, then. Yeah. Um, And to my embarrassment, I don't know. I probably don't know enough about Satanist uh, religion and theology. Um, What do you think of how the film portrays the cult niche
0: interest, which does does include
1: it does include a um, (laughs) it does include a rather distressing cat sacrifice.
0: That that honestly, I'm sorry. I, I I just laughed so hard when they threw the cat on the fire because it's clearly like a bundled up chunk of carpet or something.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you did the you did the the foley sound effect of the meow. yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's
0: it's literally you going meow when they throw it onto the fire. It's like not even a cat making that sound. So so what I find to be really interesting. is, So um, Massimo Introvigne is an Italian Catholic scholar who wrote the uh, I think it's called the Cultural Anthropology of Satanism very long book very mm-hmm. well researched very well done it's kind of the like the cornerstone of contemporary like satanic studies um and like one of the things that intravenier breaks apart is that there's like only a few meaningful branches of what one would actually consider satanism and and like so you've got the kind of like 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 he outlines like a lot of like Medieval alchemists invoked like Luciferian imagery, but they weren't worshiping the devil. They were just doing things by way of analogy. They didn't actually believe or worship Satan. They just needed Lucifer to be part of their like alchemical analogy process. And then you've got Mm -hmm. uh, the, the the kind of like actual like people who worship Satan as the bad guy of the Bible, which would be the cult. It would be the ones cult in this movie. People who are actually doing something evil for the purpose of evil. Uh, which I find to be really interesting because when the one is drawing his like circle of protection around his little satanic cat sacrifice altar, he specifically says that no evil and unclean spirits will be able to enter his space but isn't and then he goes on to talk about bringing about wickedness and Satan and I'm like, aren't you like team evil unclean spirits yeah, like y- y- yeah wouldn't that be super cool isn't, isn't <laughs> that specifically what you're working on here so there's some inconsistency with the ones cult. Which is historically appropriate for Satanism, because like uh, the Satanic Temple uh, grows out of the Church of Satan, grows out of of fucking Evola, the architect of Italian fascism, like like, and then of course the Satanic Temple is randian as hell, or or not um, that that is true, but the Church of Satan is randian as hell, and so you have like this kind of like you know there aren't too many like like medieval alchemists around doing kind of using Satan in that way. There are very rare instances of actual Satan murderer cult types. Um, you know, mm-hmm, a lot of yeah. them are like you know came out of like black metal bands. See, see our previous episode on those. Um, and then like mo- most most people are are kind of just rebranding Jesus Christ to be goth and then doing Satanism. Yeah, what if we had goth Jesus? The, 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 <laughs> the, the, the Satanic Temple is doing like goth Jesus. Which and that's something that Intervigne kind of explores and lays out in that book, and and I find it to be, this is like an incredibly interesting thing that is so worth picking apart and in, in dissecting and exploring, and then and then you get to this movie and this movie is like, I think unintentionally enmeshed in that history, because like yeah, it's like they just love doing evil. Yeah, they they love they love just kind of doing something bad, but they're also like 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 you know read their little ritual they're like super inconsistent about it and what they're attempting to do is really inconsistent like which winds up being like really historically apt because like like you know like the the the, one of the functions of the church of satan was to like draw in vulnerable women and Mm -hmm. and like oh look what the cult in this movie is doing it's it's drawing in vulnerable women to their weird cult
1: yeah there is there is there is a degree of um a kind of like yeah it the, it, it's oh no not the dangerous cult taking or uh, taking away our women and you go oh mm-hmm. it's it's all gone very 19th century all of a sudden you yeah know? this is
0: this is a horribly familiar discourse for very bad reasons and then we, and we also mm-hmm. have like 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 this this intra-patriarchal dispute right between the De facto, de judo president—the president of the biker gang—with the one, the leader of the cult, right? Like the we, we again, Eve Kasowski Sedgwick. Did I say that right? Am I too in my yeah, own yeah. head? To, um, like we have the homosocial triangle forming, right? Because we have two the, the, these two guys who are leading incredibly similar groups. They're they're both pseudo satanic, right? They're both outlaws in the literal sense of the term. You know, like they're both up to no good, and now they're yeah, fighting over a, a woman—an
1: angel, an, an angel of hell versus a monk yeah, from hell?
0: Yeah. And, and and so like the, the the space between them is nowhere near as frightening as it should be. And I almost think that like, because Tarot in so many ways is like also running from the realizations that he's pulling out of the cards. Like he's he's refusing to mm-hmm. like he has so many opportunities to just leave. And there's even a scene where a bunch of the other bikers are like, oh, okay, okay, like. Do you want to be president of the biker gang? Do you want to take power? You know, and then he's like, oh, no, I I don't I don't know if I can. I don't know if that's what I want to do. You know, like he's he's kind of kind of shirking the responsibility of the realizations he's made because he should take power and leave mm-hmm. or he or he should just leave of his own accord. You know, like,
1: yeah, there's there's this kind of like weird. Uh, maybe this is a thing that happened as like the spirituality of the sixties sort of curdled mm-hmm. slightly. Everything becomes syncretic. Everything is like drawing off multiple, often contradictory sources, all at the same time.
0: Yes, and you and you have stuff like the the the, the hippies largely didn't just disappear. They just folded into like the new age spiritual movement. You know, they yeah. they, they, they yeah, stopped yeah. congregating and doing free love, and they became like swingers doing reiki with crystals on a on a cruise ship yeah they 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 became like wellness anti-vaxxer moms exactly exactly and again like i think that's that's one of the kind of like troubles that we have to like wrestle when we're working with like these like weird biker exploitation movies is that like that impulse to say fuck the man you, you know like is correct, but also, like, that needs to be explicated, right? Like, the man needs to be defined a little bit here. Otherwise, you wind up, like, you go to bed one night, a hippie believing in free love, and that you're about to bring about the age of Aquarius, and then you wake up 50 years later voting to defund a school district b- because they suggested vaccinating a child against a fucking global pandemic. <laughs> yes, I think this is actually
1: why exploitation cinema is so interesting because it reveals the basic kind of contradictions of the operations of contemporary ideology
0: yes yes and there's there's a there's there's such a good moment that passes you by in this film in the blink of an eye and you don't catch it unless you did what i did and that's force your housemate to watch you rewind it for like five to ten minutes as you try and hear this noise in the background (laughs) So so when the biker mm-hmm. gang arrives at the gas station, they're listening to like local nowhere desert radio. Yes, I know exactly what the you're talking radio, about. Radio. And and I had to listen to the, replay this scene like 5 or 6 times to get this. The radio is playing an advertisement for a bunch of services for local cattle ranchers, which is huge in the American Southwest. Yes yeah and it's, it's specifically talking about like bovine growth hormones and and cattle feed and stuff like that yeah
1: it's called like fat
0: right? <laughs> and, and that puts this movie in conversation with another similar like american southwest you know movie and that's texas chainsaw massacre right like
1: yes i was hoping i was hoping we'd get even, to this even
0: in the this this movie cannot escape the blast radius of of like the american slaughterhouse industry right like even being this proximal Mm -hmm. to it draws it back into that conversation what what were what were some of your thoughts about that this kind of like weird texas chainsaw massacre evocation that's happening here well it's it's the beginning of the end right
1: it's the beginning of the end right uh when is it that um people like frederick jameson or um giovanni rigori talk about as like the beginning of neoliberalism it's like 1973 Mm-hmm. like we you were at the you were at the beginning of the end of you know capitalist liberal democracy in america yeah. um and and already the the rot was always already yeah. there
0: and we can we can even see that in the actions of of these bikers it mirrors so perfectly what winds up happening in texas Chainsaw massacre right like this is proto sawyer family yeah. You know, like they're not they're they're outlaws rebelling against a, a messed up world, but like ultimately, what are their what are their material actions amount to other than harassing a bunch of rural gas station employees? That's getting into yeah. fights, uh, and that's a, a it's about, it's about it. it. It's I just think. kind of like mild shenanigans and occasionally assaulting gas station employees. Like that's their big like oh here's how we're here's how we're gonna stick uh, it particularly to the
1: man. Put, yeah sticking it to the man who has got the uh i i suspect somewhat offensive comedy southern accent that he's doing
0: <laughs> that that was it's like well well i do the clip. that was that that, that 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 honestly if there was any point in this there's a lot of just bike riding in this movie but if there was any point that i'm like okay you're padding for time it was like the extended like Three Stooges slapstick comedy bit where these bikers just torment like a yeah. KFC colonel a who's running a who's gas basi- station. Yeah, he's basic he's basically doing his best yeah, foghorn, yeah. leghorn like horn impersonation. Which is which is kind of a little out and of it's place like, for being in like, you know, like the Southern California, Arizona, Nevada desert zone. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but he's he's, you know, it's a little weird in your movie about the lycanthropy and you know, Satanic cat murdering cults so
0: let's 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 close out this episode then by by doing the thing that we've managed to skip entirely in the werewolf movie and talk about the werewolves
1: <laughs> in a way, don't they there's a kind of like vintage feel to them which I sort of
0: enjoy um what, what are your thoughts? so I, I liked that I liked that a lot, right The werewolf in this movie is very much an homage to the wolf man. Right, that style. Yeah, it's very Lon chainy. It's very long chainy. Right. And so so what winds up happening is the cult the cult either accidentally or on purpose turns biker girlfriend into a werewolf. And then she vampire bites her boyfriend, which turns him into a werewolf. Cause that's how that's, it works. Write everybody. That down. that's how this happens. That's canon. So we've got this interesting thing where we've got these like throwback werewolves, and like it's not until the very end of the movie that we actually see a werewolf on wheels. The thing, which, yes. which I, at first I was like, oh, this is going to be one of those annoying things where it's called werewolves on wheels, but they never quite figured out how to make the guy see in the costume so they couldn't put him on a motorcycle safely. And then I'm like, I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Even this movie would have figured out rear projection. Even even this movie would have figured out like how, how to make it look like the motorcycle's going when he, in fact he's standing entirely still. And so the the kind mm-hmm. of absence of, there's an absent presence of werewolves on motorcycles in this movie. And I think it's like calling into question a little bit the 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 now come shark spectacle. Because all of those Sharknado movies, How Shark, all of that, whether or not they're good is a separate conversation, but they are all driven by the spectacle. You go see Sharknado in space or Shark Side of the Moon because you're there to see, oh my god, this is going to be so wild. It's a shark-werewolf movie versus the shark sharks of the corn or whatever like like it's driven by spectacle and here we have a movie about a motorcycle werewolf gang who never it's not it's not until the end of the movie do we get a poorly lit motorcycle werewolf
1: i really think that as as notes go our only point for improving this is more werewolves (laughs) and motorcycles that's that's all we needed that's all we needed but yeah, the, and obviously some of that is a kind of technical problem, some of it. But it's also a
0: aesthetic mm-hmm. choice. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like not not showing the monster too much. Otherwise, like I don't like 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 in the, like in this movie, like I don't know because I do these kind of things. Like I pause it when the monster's on screen, and and yeah, you know maybe maybe the mask and chest piece aren't tucked into the shirt sometimes, and and the shirt's inside of the werewolf somehow, which is a bit awkward. But I do think it is in- oh, but, but at the same time, but at the same time, it gives you exactly what it's promised. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I do I do really appreciate that. That this is a new Hollywood movie. It it is a deep meditation on the kind of dawn of the American decline. And it's like, here are some werewolves too. And and, and the werewolf itself is, as a figure is interesting, right? Like it's linked into the serial killer. It's linked into this like animalistic mm-hmm. metamorphosis that you're going through. You're becoming something uncontrolled. You're becoming something bestial, right? Like, like the, yes. the controlled, safe, white picket fence and 2.5 kids post-war American boom is, is now metamorphosizing. And even, even the uncontrolled yes. elements, even the hippie and the biker and the things on the outskirts, the wilderness is becoming wilder as things start to decay. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a perfect time for the werewolf to, to make a big comeback. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.